Hello everyone, I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com, that is cruxnow.com. And this is Crux's signature video production. Footnote, also it's only video production. <laughs> Last week in the church. Now this is the show where we take Leftover Catholic news, the kind of stuff you find at the back of your fridge because in some cases it happened a week ago. But we throw it into a skillet, we sprinkle over our secret spices, add in our secret Crux brand sauce, serve it up piping hot and delicious. Here's what we've got for you this week. Why what should be a golden moment for Italy really isn't and what lessons that might hold for the Catholic Church. The Vatican's trial of the century gets back underway, but nobody, and I mean nobody, really seems to know what's going on. Pope Francis sits down for a warm heart-to-heart -heart with a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor, illustrating his unique approach to interfaith relations. The furor over Benedict XVI's record on sex abuse continues, the Vatican tries to come to his defense, sort of. The Vatican's foreign minister is in Lebanon this week, trying to mobilize the church to address that country's ongoing economic, social, and spiritual crisis. And finally, as a bonus feature this week, Disney Plus is coming to the Vatican. That's what we've got for you, so please stick around. All right, well, thanks for being with us this week. Happy Monday to you. You may have noticed that we are back at our normal base of operations in Rome. Last week, of course, we came to you from Key West, but I have, I have been forced to kind of shuffle off the coil of Key West. I am now clean shaven. My vacation scruff is gone. I'm wearing my business attire again. But here's the good news, ladies and gentlemen. Just because you're not in Key West doesn't mean there can't be a little bit of Key West in you. Yesterday, we had some friends over to our house. I made tropical drinks for everyone, rum runners, key lime daiquiris. I was rocking my shorts and my tropical shirt. I highly recommend this to you. If you live in a cold weather environment, take a couple days during the winter and declare a kind of indoor beach holiday. Crank up the heat, put Jimmy Buffett on the deck, break out your blender or make some frozen drinks, have some fresh seafood, and just, you know, feel a little bit of the islands wherever you are. I mean, really, it is a tonic for everything that ails you, I promise. All right, we begin this week with the surprise, I guess you would say, re-election of 80-year-old Sergio Mattarella as the president of the Republic here in Italy. Mattarella had completed his seven-year term. It was up in late January, or actually, I think it's technically up in, in early February. But in any event, he had made it abundantly clear he was not interested in a second term. He made his farewell visit to Pope Francis on December 16th. He spurned repeated offers to stand for a second term. He even took a lease on an apartment in Rome that he wanted to move into. 
and spend his golden years puttering around. God knows the man had earned it. However, the Italian electoral system proved itself utterly incapable of selecting a successor to Mattarella. And just when complete paralysis and disaster loomed, the country's power structure went uh, to Mattarella essentially on bended knee and begged him to save them from themselves. Mattarella reluctantly agreed. He was then overwhelmingly re-elected. He got 759 votes out of a possible 1,009. That's the second highest total for any president since Italy became a republic in 1948. And he's now once again ensconced in the Quirinale Palace. The poor guy, the lead item on Italian TV today was how he had to get in a car and go to this new apartment in Rome and get all the stuff he had put there out of it and drag it all back to the Quirinale so he can do it all over again. He will be formally sworn in this week, February 3rd. Now, here's the thing. At one level, this is great news for Italy. Mattarella has proved himself a magnificent president. The president in Italy is largely a ceremonial role, but he's kind of the father of the nation, you know? And he has proved himself completely up to that job. I mean, he, he is mature. He believes in institutional stability. He believes in the national interest. He's also great at capturing the national mood because in some ways he's an ordinary guy himself. I, I mean, rem I remember over the summer when Italy made that golden run to winning the, the European soccer championship, Mattarella was at every game. And then he had the team when they'd finally won. He had them visit him at the Quirinale. And he gave this speech that was like, I don't know, it was like listening to Chris Berman on ESPN do the, the highlights. I mean, he just knew everything because he'd been there and he was into it. And he just came off like an ordinary fan, you know, wanting to celebrate the, the team's success. People love him. And so we've got somebody in that ceremonial but very important role who obviously has the nation so nation's interest rather than his own at heart, who is a man who will always favor stability rather than partisan interest. And in the prime minister's position, Italy still has Mario Draghi. Many people regard him as the strongest prime minister in Europe right now, leading a fairly robust economic recovery from the doldrums of the COVID-19 pandemic providing adroit leadership on the international stage. I mean, in many ways, this ought to be a golden moment for Italy. I mean, you could argue that Italy is now the most important and the best-led country in all of Europe. The thing of it is, nobody here really feels all that great about the outcome because what they know is that the way we got there is that the major parties in Italy, both on the left and the right, essentially imploded and devoured themselves. The center-right had the votes to dictate the next president. Mattarella, by the way, is from the center-left. However, the leaders in the center-right couldn't agree. They spent all their time fighting with one another. And so in the end, they could never consolidate behind a particular candidate. 
The center left is in equal disarray, obvious divisions between the main Democratic Party and the center left populist movement, the Five Star Movement, and huge divisions within the Five Star Movement right now. In other words, Italy succeeded in spite of itself. This is not an indication of the health of the Italian democracy. This is Italy kind of like getting a free pass despite the dysfunction of its democracy. Now, what are the implications of this for the Catholic Church? Well, look, ladies and gentlemen, at some future point, and we don't know when it is, there is absolutely no indication that Pope Francis is done. I mean, on the contrary, it seems full steam ahead. But at some future point, the Catholic Church is going to have to face its own succession in the top job. And right now, like Italy, the Catholic Church seems hopelessly divided. Divided between supporters and opponents of Pope Francis. Divided between right and left. Divided between north and south. Divided in, in almost incalculable ways. And these camps seem to spend the majority of their time taking shots at one another, particularly on social media, where it often seems the most extreme positions are the ones that get rewarded. They get all the retweets and the likes and so on. And voices of moderation and reason are like dead in the water. Now, maybe when the Catholic Church reaches its next threshold, its next crossroads, like Italy, it'll be able miraculously to pull a rabbit out of the hat and find some consensus elder statesmen that everyone can rally around. But you know what? Luck is not a basis for long-term planning. The reality is that Italy just got lucky. It was dumb luck, and that's it. It just as easily could have been chaos and dysfunction and utter cataclysm. And if the Catholic Church wants to avoid that result, I would suggest that rather than sitting around and hoping for a hot streak when the moment comes, it might be better to try to address some of those internal divisions now so that there can be a basis for compromise, consensus, and acting in the general interest rather than partisan interest when that big moment comes. All right, next, the Vatican's trial of the century. This is that mega trial centering on this a spectacularly failed real estate deal in London where the Vatican sunk $400 million into what was basically a black hole, lost, well, God knows, maybe $100 million, maybe more on the deal, and has now indicted 10 individuals, including for the first time, a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu. The trial was suspended over the holidays. It resumed on January 25th. Basically what happened in that hearing, which started a couple of hours late for reasons that really went unexplained. The presiding judge, Giuseppe Pignatoni, apologized but didn't really explain it. Anyway, what happened in that hearing is that Charges which had been temporarily dismissed around, uh, for, against certain defendants were readmitted. So we're now back to 10 people who are facing charges in this process, and, as well as a handful of corporate entities. 
And in addition, new objections from the defense were heard in addition to the old ones that were all already on the record, most of it having to do with the failure of the prosecutors to turn over key bits of evidence. The, the judge accepted those objections but didn't rule on them. And in the media, there was a kind of back and forth. After the hearing, defense lawyers were saying, it's just outrageous that the prosecution still hasn't turned over the stuff we want. Meanwhile, the lead prosecutor, a guy named Alessandro Didi, was out there saying, hey, we've turned over mountains of evidence. I don't know what these guys are complaining about. We've done our job. And Didi added, by the way, we said we would re-interview any defendant who wanted it. None of them showed up. So really, it's on them, not on us. What's the takeaway from all of this? Well, the takeaway, I suppose, is we really still don't know how this trial is going to shake out. We don't know if the prosecution is going to turn over the defense, the evidence that the defense is seeking. I mean, one thing is, Apparently, there are some digital images that were used as part of the prosecution indictment. The defense is claiming that of more than 200 of those images, they've only gotten about 15. You know, I don't know. You know, we will see whether or not there is full disclosure or whether or not the prosecution is allowed by the court to withhold certain bits of evidence. We also don't know what the court might do if the prosecution fails to comply with its orders. I mean, in other words, there are more questions than answers. What we do know is that this, this continues to be, despite the kind of farcical elements of it, and I will grant you that so far, this has been more farce than drama. Nevertheless, it remains really important because try to remember that the reform of the Vatican promised under Pope Francis was supposed to begin with finances, the watchwords of the reform were supposed to be transparency and accountability. So far, this has been much less than a fully transparent process. So far, no one has been held accountable for anything. <laughs> we will see how it shakes out. A footnote to this story, by the way. Speaking of that London property, the Vatican announced this week that it signed a contract to sell it. And they're saying that they're going to gain more from that sale than they thought they were going to do. But they didn't say what the final amount is going to be. Still would seem that they're going to take a loss on it, although maybe just not as big of a loss. And that remains totally mysterious, too, because frankly, how do you lose money on a real estate deal in London? I mean, nobody loses money on real estate in London. Even I, I can't balance my checkbook right? I mean, math is not my thing. Even I, I think, would have a hard time losing money investing in real estate in London. But the Vatican figured out a way. So there you are. All right. Next up this week, Pope Francis this week had a sit down in the Santa Marta, that's the Vatican residence where he lives, with a 90-year-old woman named Edith Brook. She's Hungarian by birth, but she now lives in Rome. She is Jewish. She is a Holocaust survivor. She's also a writer. Pope Francis got to know her work after becoming Pope. In, last February, he went to pay a visit to her in her apartment in Rome. And now Brooke has returned the favor by meeting Francis in the Vatican. 
Now, bear in mind, Brooke is 90, Francis is 85. So you've got an octogenarian and a nonagenarian sitting down. And apparently, most of their conversation concentrated on the importance of elderly people sharing their wisdom with young people, not just about good stuff, but also about the tragedies of the past so that they won't repeat themselves. Now, here's the thing about Pope Francis. In many ways, he has a kind of checkered history when it comes to Jewish relations. I mean, yes, he, he visited uh, Auschwitz, and, and his silence there was perhaps the most eloquent thing he's done on one of these trips. You know, I mean, he has reached out to the Jewish communities in many ways. One of his best friends is a Jewish rabbi from Argentina, Abraham Skorka. But, you know, as Pope, he has sometimes, like, shot himself in the foot. I mean, you know, you, you may remember a few years ago, there was a conference here in Rome organized by a number of leading Jewish scholars urging Christians to stop talking trash about the Pharisees, saying the Pharisees were actually the antecedents of the rabbis. They were the, the learned class that kind of saved Judaism in exile. And yet Pope Francis continues to use the word Pharisee like a pejorative, right? I mean, if he doesn't like somebody, nine times out of 10, he's gonna call him a Pharisee. And then earlier, well, last August, he got himself into trouble again because during a general audience, he was talking about the Torah, the Jewish law. And he said, the Torah doesn't give life. The Torah can only give death. It can't fulfill itself. It needs Christ. And for a lot of Jewish observers, that seemed reminiscent of the old, what used to be called supersessionist theology, the idea that Judaism is passe, it's superannuated, it's, it's sell-by date, you know, has expired. It has no further point, and they should all just become Christians, which theoretically was rejected at Vatican II. And, you know, and a, a group of rabbis in Israel wrote letters to the Vatican protesting the Vatican sort of backtracked, although Francis never withdrew those comments in any formal way. My point is, if you had to rely just on Francis the theologian, right, or Francis the public speaker, I guess, you know, I'm not sure that his relations with Jews, or for that matter, with any other religion, would be all that robust. But the thing of it is, with Francis, it's about much more. Everybody knows that theology is not where Francis comes alive, right? Talking about the fine points of formal academic theology. Everybody also knows that Francis sometimes channels his inner country pastor and just lets it all hang out and sometimes says stuff that if you put it under a microscope is a little hard to swallow. But what, what Francis does, and better than almost anybody else, is that Francis gets in rooms with real flesh and blood people. And he establishes connections with those people on a kind of heart to heart level. And when he does that, you kind of say, okay, the rest of this, that's not the real guy, right? The real guy is that guy I was sitting with in my living room yesterday, who was pouring his heart out about his own experiences in Argentina and who was crying when I talked about my experiences during the Holocaust.
and who swore that with every molecule of his being, he wanted to devote himself to, 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 to trying to make sure that doesn't happen again, right? I mean, in other words, Francis's approach to interfaith relationships is premised on relationships and not theology and not rhetoric, right? And sometimes you may wish that the theology and the rhetoric was a little bit more thought out, but it's hard to argue with the impact of the relationships, and, and his session with Edith Brooke illustrates the point. All right, next. The ongoing furor over Benedict XVI. We, we talked about this last week. Basically, the Archdiocese of Munich recently released a, port, a report conducted by an independent law firm it had commissioned about clerical sexual abuse in the archdiocese over the last 74 years. It found that during the tenure of Joseph Ratzinger, the future Benedict XVI, as the archbishop and then the cardinal of Munich, there had been at least, a, at least four cases that were not appropriately handled. Now, this news kind of created a sensation around the world. The idea was, was Benedict XVI in on the cover-up of sexual abuse? Now, in some ways, like everything we said last week remains true. That is, of these four cases, one of them was, was dismissed by the authors of the report themselves. They said Benedict was exonerated upon closer examination. Another was torn apart in 2010, and the conclusion was Benedict had nothing to do with it. Of the remaining two cases, the jury is still out. Now, new developments in the meantime. One is that Benedict, in exhaustive responses to researchers who were preparing this report, he was asked about hundreds of different things. One of them was a meeting in 1980 in which one of these abuser priests was discussed. Benedict had initially said that he wasn't at that meeting. Then, however, when minutes were produced showing that he was there, he had to backtrack and said that his initial answer was due to an editing error. Now, look, I mean, you can blow that up into a smoking gun if you want to, but I would ask you, how many among us remember precisely what we were doing 40 years ago? I mean, hell, I barely remember what I was doing 40 minutes ago. And so I'm not really sure that this is, you know, the thing, that the case against Benedict rises or falls on the basis of this. The other new development is that the Vatican came to Benedict's defense with an editorial by the Vatican's editorial director, Andrea Tornielli, a veteran Italian journalist, and at one time, probably the best, the best Vatican journalist on the beat, hired by Pope Francis. To, to be his kind of, well, I don't know, journalist-in-chief, maybe, it would be the way to put it. Now, Andrea's editorial came in for significant criticism because even though it's obviously in response to the criticism following the Munich report, it never actually addresses the charges in the Munich report. Instead, it focuses on Benedict's record as pope, which was undeniably a reformist record. Now, the thing of it is, of course, the Munich report was not examining Benedict's record as Pope. It was examining his record as the Archbishop Cardinal of Munich. And so, in a way, Tornielli's editorial was utterly off the point. 
I mean, in other words, both things could be true. There could be problems with, ben with Ratzinger's record in Munich, and yet Benedict could have had a great track record as Pope. In fact, the two things could actually be related. It could be because of those experiences in Munich that Benedict resolved to be such a strong reformer as Pope. So, you know, it, it was a defense that didn't really respond to the prosecution. And, and a footnote about this, uh, and this sort of comes under the heading, I guess, of a memo to my dear friend Andrea Tornielli. Along the way in this editorial, Andrea addresses the fact that Benedict wanted a humbler church, a church capable of admitting its sins and willing to confront the filth in its own midst. Now, that's all true. However, Andrea dropped in this kind of parenthetical phrase saying, Ratzinger, comma, against the will of many Ratzingerians, comma, did all these great things. Now, Ratzingerian in Vatican speak is a kind of code word for the conservatives whom under this papacy are considered the bad guys. While Bergoglioisti, meaning supporters of the current Pope, Pope Francis, are considered the good guys. And that parenthetical phrase kind of injects a West Side Story, Sharks v. Jets feel to this whole thing, as if, you know, we're getting ready to rumble in the streets and these two gangs are calling each other out. I ask the question, is that really necessary? And I also ask the question, is it even true? Like, because, Andrea, here's the deal. I mean, you and I were both around during the John Paul years. You know very well. That, if, that, that the enemies of a humbler church willing to confess its sins weren't the Ratzingerians. It was the old guard in the Secretary of State, that crowd that believes that being in charge means never having to say you're sorry. And, and that was the real obstacle to progress. That was the obstacle that Joseph Ratzinger had to fight against as prefect of the Congregation for the Faith and later as pope. And it's to Ratzinger's credit that he largely drove that old guard into exile. Anyway, my point is, if there's any issue in the life of the church that ought to be beyond the reach of partisan left v. right politics, it is surely the sex abuse scandals. And sort of dragging that into it through the back door, I don't know, it, I don't know, it, it just seems gratuitous and unnecessary and arguably counterproductive. But, you know, that could just be me. All right, next up, the Vatican's foreign minister, British Archbishop Paul Gallagher, is in Lebanon this week, getting there today. He'll be there through, through Friday. The idea is to try to mobilize the Catholic Church to address that country's deep, deep crisis. And make no mistake, Lebanon is in crisis. At roughly 80% of the country today is living below the poverty level. 31% of Lebanese children are no longer in school because they've been forced to go to work to try to support their families. The population of Lebanon has been swelled by a massive influx of refugees from neighboring Syria. And again, according to UN statistics, a staggering 99% of those Syrian refugees in Lebanon are undernourished, that is, they're facing hunger. The presence of all these Syrians amid the country's implosion has generated deep social tensions between native Lebanese and the Syrians. I mean, a lot of people think the country is 
in its worst condition since its bloody civil war in the 1980s. And look, this is of concern to the Vatican, not merely for humanitarian reasons, but also because Lebanon is in many ways Christianity's last line of defense in the Middle East. The population of roughly 60 or, uh, 6 or 7 million is somewhere between 30 and 40% Christian. Majority tradition are the Maronite Christians, one of the most resilient Christian churches on the planet. So if Lebanon goes down the tubes, the prospects for Christianity's survival in the Middle East go down the tubes with it. And therefore, we will be paying close attention to what comes out of Gallagher's visit, especially because, by the way, it could be an advance run for a possible papal visit to Lebanon later in the year. We will see. Finally this week, my bonus item. Disney Plus, that's the online streaming service of the Disney Corporation, announced this week its plans for expansion in 2022. And on the list of countries that it wants to expand to is, believe it or not, Vatican, the Vatican City State. Now, two things about that. One, I hate to break it to the good people at Disney, but the Vatican doesn't have its own cable or satellite service. It, it relies basically on the Italian system, which means Disney Plus is actually already in the Vatican. I mean, one of the ways my wife, Elise, and I know that is that we have a friend who lives and works in the Vatican who's been watching the Beatles documentary on Disney Plus get back, which is terrific, by the way. You should watch it if you haven't seen it yet. But anyway, he's been watching it in his Vatican residence without, you know, any kind of problem. And second, like, I'm not really sure the, 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 the Vatican is the target demographic for the Disney Corp anyway. I mean, yeah, they like G-rated stuff, don't get me wrong. But a lot of the stuff on the Disney Channel is for kids. Have you ever looked? at the demographics of the Vatican City State, I mean, it does not skew young, okay? <laughs> You're talking about a lot of guys in their 70s and 80s and north of that. And I'm really sure that like, I don't know, cartoons is their scene. However, the news that Disney Plus wants to get a toehold in the Vatican drove me today to look up their programming lineup just to try to get a sense of what denizens of the Vatican might be interested in. And I note that Disney Plus includes a program called the Mysterious Benedict Society. Now we got a Pope Benedict in the Vatican, right? Living there in kind of rehabbed monastery. And so, you know, that might be of appeal. And digging deeper, I note that the plot line of this show, apparently, is about a group of kids who are recruited to penetrate this kind of evil institution that is trying to project subconscious subliminal messages into people's brains for nefarious purposes. Now, if you think about it, that kind of was Benedict's mission as Pope, right? He wanted to do battle with a dictatorship of relativism, and he wanted to recruit younger priests, younger seminarians, younger believers, to kind of pick up the cause, right? So, I don't know, maybe that will play well in the Vatican, remains to be seen. But all I can tell the Disney Corporation is, you know, good luck in your expansion plans. 
I hope your business model doesn't depend on the Vatican as your new principal revenue stream. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for being with us. Over the course of the next seven days, my charge to you is stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.